Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to another episode of our Classic Hollywood Memories podcast. And in today's episode, we're going to do a feature on arguably the greatest screen legend Hollywood ever produced, and that's the great Betty Davis. And in the Film Institute, the American Film Institute's uh, 50 Greatest Screen Legends, Betty Davis was ranked number two behind uh, the equally great Catherine Hepburn. But of course, we could go back and forth between who would merit the top spot. And so that's not the point of this episode. I just want to chronicle some of the successes in Betty Davis's illustrious career and why she remains such a icon to this day. So when you look back, when Betty Davis started her career, she started out with Warner Brothers. And at that time, there was a lot of dominant actresses at the beginning of the early talkie era. So her first, her debut picture was The Bad Sister in 1931. And of course, this began a long chain of supporting roles as the studio was trying to figure out what to do with her. And as you'll see in some of these early pictures prior to 1934, she had that uh, blonde hair and she actually looked good in it. So here she had a couple of supporting roles and she did a lot of pictures from this period from 1931 to 1934. And just in 1931 alone, she did four pictures. And what's interesting about her debut picture, The Bad Sister for Warner Brothers, she had a supporting role. But Humphrey Bogart also appeared in this one as well. So it's really interesting to think that when you look back on it, you know, Warner Brothers didn't know exactly what they had with those two. So it just shows the dedication to their craft that they were able to keep ascending as the years progressed and working on their craft. So continuing on with that, she did. She even had a supporting role in the original Waterloo Bridge a romantic movie that Vivian Lee popularized with Robert Taylor in the remake in 1940, but she was in the original picture there. So you'll catch her in that one. But Betty had a nice supporting role here when she really got her first notice, you could say, would probably be in 1932's The Man Who Played God with George Arliss. Now, this was a George Arliss picture all the way, but Betty Davis really distinguished herself here. And she had very fond things to say about Arliss as a person and as in his acting ability as well. So that's good to hear when you read in one of her biographies. But then the, that same year, right after The Man Who Played God, which I recommend you see, it's a very encouraging, heartwarming message, you know, which uh, audiences in the Great Depression era needed to hear. In that same year, 1932, she appeared in her only picture with the great Barbara Stanwyck, and that was so big in 1932. Now, at this time, Barbara Stanwyck was the established star out of the two of them. And it's real interesting when you compare them, because out of the contemporaries that Betty Davis is most often compared to, uh, Joan Crawford, Barbara Stanwyck, and Katharine Hepburn, Betty Davis became a star last, or had her breakthrough role last before the other three. So that's real interesting to see. But as we'll, as history has shown us, it's not how you start, it's how you end things. And so Betty Davis continued pushing she was never complacent, and she ended up surpassing, you know, Crawford and Stanwyck. But she probably wasn't that equal footing with Hepburn as their careers had a lot of similarities. But anyway, in, in So Big, 1932, that was another good message movie. Even though it was a pre-code picture, it did not have any of that other stuff that people saw in the pre-code era. So that was a very encouraging picture. So right here with these, with 1932, this is where she started getting a little more notice. And in 1932, she did nine pictures. And of course, Hollywood at that time during the studio era was like a factory. That's the best way to describe it. They would mass produce pictures in bunches. So it was customary for actors and actresses to 
be working one day and one picture, finish that one, and the next day working on another one. So 1932, nine pictures she did all together, you know, so different supporting roles. So in one of those notable pictures, uh, that same year, 1932, 20,000 Years in Sing Sing, this one was also good because she also appeared with Spencer Tracy. And this one was notable, too, because here, this Spencer Tracy was still with Fox Studios. He did not, he was not an MGM yet, and that's a part of Tracy's career that's not as discussed. But in those early 30s, some of these great actors and actresses that we, that are known as legends today... In that beginning of the early talkie era, they were still trying to find their way and the studios didn't really know what to do with them. But that was a noteworthy pairing to see them two working together. And Betty Davis often lamented that she never was able to work with Spencer Tracy again after that when they had both uh, had arrived as stars. So she continued on, appeared in other supporting roles. They even tried uh, coupling her with George Arliss again in The Working Man in 1933, another good picture. But still, she was just getting supporting roles. You know, she was not at that level yet, you know, not getting the prestige pictures that other actresses like Kay Francis, who was the dominant actress in Warner Brothers at that time. So she needed that big breakthrough. And of course, it wasn't happening. You know, she stood she had talents. You got to give the studios credit. They were using her. She appeared in 1934 with Jimmy with Jimmy Cagney and Jimmy the Gent. So she had some good, uh, good supporting roles there. But. She finally had her breakthrough, and it was in 1934, which is one of my personal favorite movies of all time, because that was actually, if you listen to my earlier podcast, that was the first classic movie that I ever saw as a child, was of human bondage in 1934, and that one impacted me to this day, because that shows what happens to underdogs. They could go through so much, but yet they can conquer in the end, and of course, Betty Davis was magnificent in this one. She was playing the role of the waitress Mildred, who was very cruel, didn't have much empathy. But at the time during the Great Depression, a lot of people had that survivalist mentality. So she represented that role perfectly. And of course, she used whoever came her way because she was trying to survive. And of course, Leslie Howard kept bailing her out whenever she ran into a lot of problems in that movie. And she just kept mistreating him. But then the role started to change. As you'll see in the picture, Betty Davis started declining, her Mildred started declining in the movie, and Leslie Howard's dreams are gradually coming true. And of course, she tries to sabotage him in the end, but, you know, right when the production code was entering into effect, you know, you'll see the ending, because I don't want to give it away for, for those of you who haven't seen it, but Of Human Bondage was the role where she finally arrived as a star, as a breakthrough star. Warner Brothers finally saw that they had something here. And so this movie is very interesting, because as she did so well in this role. She didn't win the Oscar because that same year, Claudette Colbert won for It Happened One Night. You know, of course, a a legendary movie. But it was interesting because now after Betty finally arrived with this picture, Warner Brothers knew what they had in her. She still appeared in a couple of support, uh, you know, lesser uh, star vehicles like 1934's Housewife. But then she had a, did a picture border town with Paul Mooney and Paul Mooney was one of the top stars of Warner Brothers as well. You know, he had a lot of success with, of course, Scarface and some of the other pictures that he did earlier in his career, you know. So when you see what she was doing there, she was being paired up with some of the leading men in her studio, but still they were not great pictures. So then in 1935, this is where the legend continued for her. She did a role with Franchot Tone, who at this time was a star with MGM called Dangerous. 
Now, this movie, of course, this is where Betty Davis was able to show that other side, like as she did with uh, of Human Bondage. This was a, a role that was more up her alley. She ends up stealing the man uh, who belonged to another woman, but she did it in a way where you didn't despise her character as you did it in Of Human Bondage. So here, this was a good role. She won the Oscar, and she always stated the fact that she believes that she was given this Oscar as a consolation prize for not winning it in 1934. You know, that's we don't know if that's true or not, but either way, she wanted the first Oscar she had. But still, what was interesting here is that Warner Brothers still, and it set the stage for a lot of the enmity and contentious relationship that she had with the studio bosses, because even after these two successes of Human Bondage, Dangerous, won an Oscar, she still was not getting the roles that she had sought. So 1936, she did The Petrified Forest with Leslie Howard. Again, they reunited off their success of Human Bondage. But this is the movie where Humphrey Bogart also got his breakthrough role. But still, the, she was not the centerpiece of the story. Then she did a couple of other lesser pictures, which actually precipitated in her uh, doing the lawsuits on Warner Brothers and trying to break her contract. Because then here in 1936, she did The Golden Arrow, Satan Met a Lady, which was the precursor to um, the Maltese Falcon, or at least the second version of it. And she was not happy at all with her roles. You know, Marked Woman was also pretty good because then Humphrey Bogart as well. But you could see the studio didn't really know or just were not taking advantage of her talents. So, of course, she had more uh, acrimonious uh, relationship with the studio and it still didn't get better for her. So it was actually in 1938 where now she really cemented her status as a legend when she did the movie Jezebel, playing the Southern Belle. And here, she won the Oscar. This was a dominant performance. You, you know, with Henry Fonda, George Brent was good as well. And it's interesting because George Brent ended up doing seven pictures altogether with Betty Davis. He was actually her longest tenure leading man for the majority of her pictures. And that's what suited her well, because as we're seeing in her movie catalog, Betty Davis was a dominant actress. She was a, pretty much a lot of women pictures that she did. So she needed to work with uh, male co-stars that wouldn't uh, infringe on her performance in that movie. So, you know, guys like George Brent, you know, were the type of actors that she worked with at that time. And it worked well for her. You know, obviously they had to build movie scripts around her talents and it did work. So here in, and then nine, that same year, 1938, she did an underrated picture, which I also recommend you see because here she actually played uh, sentimental in a good role. You know, was the sisters in 1938. And this one was good because it also had the, the great Errol Flynn, you know, Donald Crisp, one of the top supporting actors in that time. Anita Louise did really well here. But this one was good because about three sisters, all the things that they had to go through in the early, the turn of the century. But she actually played a sympathetic role. She was good in this one. And so you don't see that disdain that she had for Errol Flynn that she talked about later in her career. She didn't respect him as an actor, but it didn't show in this picture. So this is one I recommend you see as well. Now, 1939... She's entering into her dominant stretch, her dominant stretch of 1939 to 1945. This is where she ended up getting a host of other Academy Award nominations. She was actually nominated five years in a row. Only Greer Garson and her have ever done that, being nominated for Best Actress five consecutive years. So that's a great achievement. And in Hollywood's golden age, with all that competition, all her contemporaries, that says a lot about her talent. So definitely equally deserved.
So in 1939 alone, she did four great pictures. Dark Victory, she was nominated for Best Actress. and In any other year, she should have won, but nobody was beating Vivian Lee that year. So the ending in that one was terrific. You know, Betty, of course, her character, you know, finds out that she has a terminal illness. She only has a short time left to live. She tries to conceal this from her husband because she doesn't want to ruin him with that unhappiness. So this was a terrific picture, how she bared up under those circumstances. So it was very inspiring. And that ending was very powerful. So she, if any other year, she should have won the Oscar. But of course, nobody was beating Vivian Lee that year. So, and continuing in 1939, she did Juarez. She did it again with Paul Mooney and John Garfield. This is a terrific movie as well. Not one that not too many people discuss. The Old Maid, the first of her two pairings with um, Miriam Hopkins, was also excellent as well. Miriam Hopkins at this stage was declining in her career. You know, she had a bigger start than Betty Davis did, but here you could see the roles were changing. And The Private Lives of Elizabeth and Essex. Again, she paired up with Errol Flynn. And this is where a lot of the acrimony between them two came about was in this picture. She didn't have a lot of, she didn't enjoy her experience doing this picture. And then jumping right into 1940, I think she had, this was one of her top roles. I mean, I love the 1940s, The Letter. This movie, of course, about a woman who ends up killing her, the man that she's having an affair with and how she tries to conceal it. James Stevenson did a terrific job here as well. Herbert Marshall, very underrated, was good too. So this is one that she was also nominated for an Oscar. And she probably could have won. The ending was terrific. Gail Sondergaard really did well in her role. So you would definitely enjoy that picture. And then in 1941, she did The Great Lie. This one was very impressive because Mary Astor actually, in my opinion, stole the movie. You know, she won the Best Supporting Actress for this. George Brent, again, co-starring with them. I wasn't a big fan of this picture. I think this one was just a little overrated. You know, the, the plot was a little uneven, but Mary Astor's acting was what, you know, I felt really it saved the picture there. So she continued on. And then in 1941, as was customary, most studios, they always try to pair up their top stars for at least one or two pictures just to see what the reception would be. And of course, James Cagney in 1941 was one of those, their top male star. So this will be the second time they paired up together, but this time they will be the two headliners. It was The Bride Came COD in 1941. And this one was an attempt at a screwball comedy, but it hasn't aged well. I mean, it's good to see them both together in their prime, working together. But, you know, uh, screwball comedies was not really her strength. And I'm not saying that she couldn't do it. It's just that she didn't get many opportunities to do it. So maybe if they would have cultivated that side of her career, she probably would have been able to do it more like Catherine Hepburn did and other actresses and Barbara Stanwyck. So this one was, you should, if you want to see them two working together, it is definitely one to see. And then, of course, The Little Foxes. Great picture. This one was also a period piece. And this one, what I like, too, is because to me, Teresa Wright, this is when she was just had arrived onto the Hollywood scene, and she was terrific as well. Betty carried her role as well. So that's one of the top pictures that you want to see in her catalog. Now, continuing on for 1942, now Voyager. This is my second favorite movie that she ever did after Of Human Bondage. This movie is a movie that we all could, uh, it could all resonate with us. Being an underdog, you know, being uh, the object of criticism and disdain, even by your own family. And then what happens? She reinvents herself. She be, instead of being the ugly duckling, she turns into a beautiful swan. 
She's able to overcome her inadequacies or insecurities, and she ends up having a positive impact on the life of another family. And Paul Reed was terrific in this role. This is where that lighting up the two cigarette sequence began. And so this movie was very inspirational. And in this year, I feel she could have won the Oscar here as well. But, you know, obviously the U.S. had just gotten into World War II. And nobody was beating Greer Garson for Miss Miniver either because that was an equally terrific picture. So you could just see the level of competition at that time, how it was. You know, there was so many Oscars that she lost. Betty could have easily had four or five Best Actress Oscar wins. But, you know, with the competition at that time, it just wasn't meant to be. So 1943, this one was interesting because she did watch on the Rhine. And this movie was not built around her. It was actually built around Paul Lucas. And this one was interesting because Paul Lucas ended up winning the Best Actor Oscar for this year. And Betty knew that when she took this role, she knew that he was going to be a contender for it. So give a credit that she accepted the role, did it, and both stars shined in it. That's one of the underrated pictures that she did. Then, of course, 1943, she did one of those pictures that every studio was doing, the all-star uh, ensembles trying to raise up morale for the war effort. Thank you, Lucky Stars, in 1943. And Betty Davis should also get credit for helping to be one of the starters of the Hollywood canteen along with John Garfield, you know, to help service the troops on their way to combat overseas. So, you know, definitely that's something that she should be given credit for as well. And she continued on. She ended up reuniting with Miriam Hopkins once again, an old acquaintance, another terrific women's picture. So she she had a dominant stretch here, 1939 and 1945. She did really, really well. Miss Skeffington in 1944, she was dominating here for Warner Brothers. So you can just think about it. From 1939 to that period, she was probably the top actress in Hollywood. And it's interesting because when you compare, a lot of people, of course, compare Katherine Hepburn with Betty Davis. It's interesting that Katherine Hepburn had the better head start. She won the Oscar in her second picture in the early 30s. She had successes. But then in the mid-30s on to 1940, it was just like Betty, Catherine Hepburn had declined and was on the verge of leaving Hollywood altogether. And this is where Betty Davis took over. And, of course, as we know, Catherine Hepburn you know, resurrected her career in 1940 with the Philadelphia story, as I mentioned in an earlier podcast. But right here at this stretch, Betty was the best actress in Hollywood. She was just getting prestige pictures and she was just dominating it. So, and then, of course, another noteworthy picture, 1946, A Stolen Life. Betty Davis here playing the role of twins, of uh, two sisters. So this one is very good to see just her, the range of her acting abilities here. And then she continued. They tried to recapture the magic in 1946 with Deception with Paul Henreid. But this one didn't do as well. Of course, you know, Claude Rains was great in this one, too. But Deception didn't do as well for Warner Brothers as it, as now Voyager did. But it's still, an, I think it ages well. It's still a good picture. So that's one you might enjoy as well. Then continuing further, in 1948, she did her only picture with Robert Montgomery, who's another very underrated actor from that era. And in this one, this one was also a good picture. Robert Montgomery, this one hasn't aged as well. A lot of people have not really, were not too fond of it. And of course, this is the stretch where she was declining a little bit. And so Warner Brothers was kind of realizing that maybe her best days were behind her. But it's still a decent picture, so it's one I think you might enjoy. And then 1949, that same year, Beyond the Forest, with, you know, co-starring with the great Joseph Cotton. This one was pretty good. This is where she uttered that famous line, what a dump. And this one, 
of course, didn't do well for the studios, but it's still a, a good picture. It, it has aged well. But at this time, this is where Betty Davis, of course, was not, you know, was kind of her career was declining a little bit, at least in terms of, you know, her career with Warner Brothers. So she obviously needed another picture to really reestablish herself again. And of course, that set the stage for 1950 with arguably her greatest role and one of the greatest movies ever made. Probably in the top 15 is All About Eve. 1950, this one had everything. (laughs) It had drama, it had suspense, great character acting, the great Anne Baxter, who I felt, you know, her and Betty Davis were both nominated for Best Actress Oscars for this movie. But, I mean, both were terrific. Margot Channing, uh, uh, Betty Davis, this was like a microcosm, a representation of her career and what happened to silent movie stars earlier. You know, you're a great star and then you're getting pushed out by someone up and coming and almost every actress and actor in Hollywood has experienced that especially during the studio era so it represented the picture the Hollywood industry as well and Celeste Holm was terrific in this one as well but I think Anne Baxter 1950 was one of the toughest best actress uh, Oscar competitions ever and down the line I'm going to do an episode on that but I kind of feel like Anne Baxter should have won the Oscar for that role of course, they stole votes from each other as being both nominated her and Betty. But this was, of course, a legendary picture. George Sanders was magnificent, as he always is, playing that scoundrel role. So you definitely would enjoy that if you haven't seen it yet. That's one of the top five pictures you must see from her catalog. So she continued on in the early 50s. This is where things started also changing in her personal life. Her physical appearance started to change. She did 1951's Payment on Demand with Barry Sullivan, and this one was pretty good. I know a lot of people don't, are not too fond of it, but I like the fact that she represented a woman who was just traumatized by the news that her husband was going to divorce her and what they end up having to do or what she has to do down the end, realizing that she needed her husband. So a lot of people in this day and age don't really like that role that she did there, but I kind of felt it was very good. Barry Sullivan shined here as a man who's trying to find his way. But, you know, it was a decent ending, which I won't give away, but it was a happy ending there. So then right here, after in the early 50s, after working with Gary Merrill, she developed a romance with him. They got married. And so she did another picture with him, a phone call from a stranger in 1952. Gary Merrill was also a little underrated as well. Decent actor. And that one was pretty good as well with uh, the great Michael Rennie as well. So, but now here is where the decline continued. She was uh, nominated for another act, Best Actress Oscar in 1952 for The Star. But right here, you could pretty much see that it was just, you know, at this time, the studio era was also beginning to fragment a little bit. So some of those prestige pictures that she was used to, the studio having for her, it wasn't happening that way. So a lot of stars in this time in the 50s were freelancing. They were working with different studios. Some of them even started their own production companies. So that's pretty much where it was for a lot of them. A lot of the great studio actresses and actors from that time. And so she did another good picture in 1956, Storm Center. And the catered affair was also very good with uh, Debbie Reynolds as well. But, you know, as we can see here, this is where things started to change for her. And it's again, as you can see the flip side here. Once again, Kath, uh, Betty Davis' career was declining a little bit here in the 50s, while Catherine Hepburn's was ascending again. And so that's one thing with them, too. Catherine Hepburn did more movies with A-list stars. She did nine pictures with Spencer Tracy. 
She did movies with John John Wayne, Burt Lancaster. And so Betty Davidson, you know, did not do a lot of pictures where she was the main star with another equally dominant actor. So that was kind of like one of the major differences between them. And then, of course, entering into the 1960s, she did you know, the picture that everyone talks about with the equally legendary Joan Crawford, whatever happened to Baby Jane in 1962. And this was a horror picture. And unfortunately, she ended up getting typecast into some of those roles in the 1960s. Because after the success of whatever happened to Baby Jane, and of course the the bitterness that resulted between Joan Crawford and her, you know, after this role that they were gonna try to do this picture again in 1964, but Joan Crawford did not want to work with Betty Davis again, <laughs> and so in that picture, Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte was done with Olivia De Havilland, who was actually a good friend of Betty Davis and an equally dominant actress. And so that's, you know, pretty much how it went for Betty Davis's career. She continued on, you know, trying to get good pictures as much as she could. But, you know, her difficult personality and we call it difficult, but it wasn't difficult. She was just competitive. She actually that was a good trait that she had. She worked really hard at her craft. She wasn't complacent in her role. And you got to give her credit for that. Some people were just in it for the money, but she wasn't. She wanted to be great at anything that she did. So you have to respect her for that. She was terrific. She was one of the greatest actresses ever. And she continued on. She even in 1987 did uh, The Whales of August with Lillian Gish and Anne Southern. And so she did really well. She had a great career, one of the dominant actresses of all time. And she didn't play the casting couch game. And so, of course, a lot of people resented her at her time because of some of the harsh opinions that she had of some of her contemporaries and the ones that were targets, of course, for her, you know, enmity were Joan Crawford, Miriam Hopkins, Errol Flynn. Said a lot of harsh things about them because of, you know, their lack of professionalism or just career choices that they made. And maybe she just felt like they were too complacent and they just relied too much on their talent or they were too overconfident. But that doesn't diminish what they do, but it was just some opinions that she had. And she was, you know, a go-getter. She was not afraid to express her opinions and and believe it or not, while people may say that she was difficult, that's what made her a star. The fact that she was willing to fight. Because I mentioned earlier, if you look at her body of work in the beginning, it was a lot of supporting roles that she was being put into. She had a lot of patience to deal with what uh, Jack Warner and the studio was doing to her with her career. And so she had to fight for those prestige pictures. If she didn't have that fighting disposition, we never would have gotten those roles that we call uh, legendary to this day. She never would have been able to do Dark Victory Never would have been able to do Now Voyager, All About Eve. So you have to give her credit. And an interesting tidbit about All About Eve, believe it or not, that picture was actually, was that vehicle was supposed to be made for Claudette Colbert. But Claudette Colbert had, a, I think, had injured her back. I was reading in a, a Vanity Fair article, and she, of course she couldn't do the, the role. And so Betty Davis ended up getting it. So that's interesting when you think about that, how... Some of these legendary pictures ended up coming about by accident. But, you know, Betty Davis nominated for 10 Best Actress Oscar nominations. She won two. She could have easily won at least two more, you know, which I think uh, if it was any other year, she would have won for Dark Victory and now Voyager. So, you know, but as I mentioned, the competition was very fierce at that time. But 10 Oscar nominations, two Oscar wins. She had a great career. She's probably right up. Her and Catherine Hepburn are probably the two greatest actresses ever. 
and they set the gold standard for many years. She's been dead now for 31 years, and she has a huge following, and rightfully so. And the series Feud just exemplified that and probably created more for a fan turnout for her as well. So you can see that she's made her, she made her mark on Hollywood history. She actually inspired many actresses before her. I remember a TCM had a little featurette where Meryl Streep revealed that Betty Davis had written a letter to her uh, expressing her fondness for her type of acting and saying that she deserved to be a rightful successor as a best actress in Hollywood. So I thought that was really inspiring for Meryl Streep to, to have received that. So that just shows you that she was a good person. She did help people who were down and out. She helped take care of her mother and her sister. So she was not a selfish person in that aspect. She, you know, everybody has their uh, good traits and their bad traits, but she was definitely a legend. She exemplified hard work, commitment, diligence, and she should always be remembered as one of the greatest actresses in Hollywood history. So I thank you so much for listening in. Hope you enjoyed this episode. And and again, I want to thank everyone that's been putting nice reviews and some of the other podcast platforms. I really appreciate your, your kind words, and I hope you keep enjoying this episode. We're doing it for you. And thanks again for listening. Until next time.